Welcome to week three. I told my group, my small group, that I have this weird anxiety on week three of Bible study, and I, I couldn't make sense of it until Sunday. But I think what happens is the first two weeks, there's adrenaline and it's new. And from two to three, it transitions from like, I'm motivated to do this to I'm committed to doing this. And I think I'm always like, well, I don't know if anyone's going to come on week three. So yeah, I'm always so happy. Hey, Hal, will you close the door, please? Last week, my brother popped his head in and it messed with me. And then my husband did, and then my boss did. And I'm like, no boys allowed. I don't want this. Okay, speaking of no boys allowed, these cookies are from Lisa Utley, who is right here. Okay, so guys, Lisa is 18 years cancer-free this month. Yeah. And this month is uh, Breast Cancer Awareness Month, right? But guys, here's... So you, by eating these cookies, you just committed to something. If it is your time to get a mammogram, you have to get a mammogram. Or at least do a self-examination. I told the Sunday group this, and they go, Right now? <laughs> and I was like... No, you weirdos, no. (laughs) Not right now. Oh, my word, I've got the giggles this morning. (laughs) I know. I just have so much fun that it's hard for me to not just get up here and just laugh the whole time. But we're talking about spiritual death today, so. (laughs) Oh, man. Anyway, so those cookies are from Lisa, a way to celebrate with her, but also a way to, to raise awareness. If there's any... Leftover on your way out, please take another one and, and give it to someone else. Tell them they have to do a self-examination, though. Um, okay, so guys, as we kind of settle in, um, I'm saying this without any, like, false humility or insecurity, um, but you guys probably noticed a couple typos this week. One is that um, I... somewhere there was a little line that disappeared on day four that said, now read verses 11 through 22 and outline again. Wow. No? Okay, yes. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you notice like, I'm sorry for that. I, there was a little line that would have made that make so much more sense to you. So I apologize. Um, And then um, we never came back to finish the charts where it was Gentiles on one side and one new man on the other. So no jokes aside, I apologize for those mistakes. I do think, however, that typos are very good for my soul because they help me remember that it's not about being perfect and even like putting together the most perfect study, but that only God is perfect. And so, um, however, if you are a good editor and want to jump into the next study, I'd love to take it. Because I seriously, like, sometimes end up writing these things, like, at a soccer game or, you know, like, at such an ungodly early hour that I make mistakes. So, yeah, yeah, a little distracted. And I'm just not a detail person, too. So, anyway, let's, let's start in on Ephesians chapter 2. Let's just pray. Let's pray real quick. Father, thank you for this room of women We are all so thankful for each other and the fact that we can look around a room of women we know and don't know and just be thankful that you love all of us and that we're not in this um, alone, but that we are seeking you in a community. So would you help us this morning to make sense and to delight in Ephesians chapter 2? Amen. 
Okay, we have been saying that one of the big ideas of Ephesians is that Paul is saying it's so good to be in God's family. And this week, we are going to ask the question of how did we get in that good family? Okay, you see that flow? So chapter one, it's like blessings, blessings, blessings. And at the end of chapter one, it talks about power. It talks about Christ's power, a power that raised him from the dead and mentions that we also have this power But we notice how then chapter two starts with just this downer, right? Paul goes from this big fountain type talk to, and you were dead. And we should ask the question, why the turn, Paul? Why was that an appropriate way to write this letter? And I don't know if you would put yourself as the kid in this story or the mom in the story, but if you've ever had a child with a bad attitude, and you want to say to them, you don't know how good you got it. You don't know how good it is to be in this family. It's like Paul is saying, lest you think that you got into this good family on your own merit, lest you think that you were good enough, adorable enough, gifted enough, that you worked your way into this family. He's saying, no, 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 no. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And I also think that it's important for us as we start this chapter to, I guess, even just confess, like, hey, this is kind of a familiar chapter for for some people, in the sense that there's verses in chapter two that are often memorized early on. Like any, like, scripture memory app you would have, or if you grew up in Sunday school, you would have memorized some of these verses, and that's really good and really important. However, if you're anything like me, you just memorize them kind of out on their own, right? Rather than memorizing the whole chapter, the whole book of Ephesians. Well, what the problem can be with that is that we think that this good news is only for us or only about us. But as we dig into it this week, we're going to see that the context that Paul is writing is all about Jews and Gentiles. And then at After we go through that lens, we'll see how good it is for us. And it's just going to make the good news all the better. Okay, so you might have noticed that Paul's uh, very organized in chapter two. The first half of the chapter mirrors the second half of the chapter. Um, He does this in a lot of his writings. But what we're going to look at this week is when we talk about how God is bringing all things together through Christ, things in heaven and things on earth, That's our outline for chapter two. First of all, he's going to talk about how things in heaven are unified. That means our relationship with God. Vertical unity. How in the world did we get unified with God? And then things on earth would be our horizontal unity. Okay, so that's what's going to lead us through this. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the disobedience. He says, you were dead. You were dead, dead, dead. It's not that you were sick and needed medicine. It's not that you were tired and needed woken up. It's not that you were unmotivated and needed a slap on the butt. You were dead and there was nothing you could do about it. And then he's going to explain, oh, it's not just that there's an enemy out there who slithered in to kill you. It's also that there's evil within, that sin that slithers out and produces death. 
and you're dead because of the world in which you followed. Three reasons that he shows us that we are dead, dead, dead. The prince of the power of this air, that's the enemy. The desires for our flesh, that's our sinful nature, and the world in which we follow. And a couple months ago, I got two pretty good illustrations for this. And if you follow my Instagram, which is not that great of an Instagram account, you already know part of the story. This first one is about Mamster. Mamster the hamster. This is Maxwell's hamster, my youngest. Uh, I, a couple months ago, I was on the back porch staining the deck at our old house. And my two younger boys are in the living room, and I just hear just a terrifying scream. And I run in, and Max is bawling, and Matthias is bawling, and Max is holding Mamster in his hands. And he's kind of hiding him, and he brings him over to me. And I have no idea what they're saying because they're crying so loud. And he opens up his hands, and Mamster is as flat as a pancake and breathless, breathless. In seeing his beloved mamster in this form, what does Max do? Ah! Throws him. He luckily lands on my very soft ottoman. And I look down and this dude is not moving, not breathing. Upon seeing this, Micah, my oldest, over my shoulder, screams and starts bawling and runs out the other door. I have three bawling, screaming children and a lifeless mamster in front of me. What had happened is that Max was playing with him. And as is always true in my house of boys, Matthias had a ball and was playing with the ball, went from doing this with the ball to doing this with the ball and smacked Mamster in the head. But then, because of God's rich mercy, that was, he took a breath and he puffed back up. It's almost like, it's almost like seriously someone puffed him back up like in Princess Bride. <laughs> like he came back to life. Mamster actually is not a good illustration of Ephesians 2. He wasn't dead. He was passed out. He was concussed from Matthias. However, I have another hamster story that is much better for Ephesians 2. Before Mamster, there was a little guy named Gimli. Gimli lived in a cage that I think was a pretty cool cage. It had enough for him to do. There was enough space. But one weekend, there was an enemy in our house, a little prince. We were cat-sitting for Mikey Stewart. And Mittens the cat, in his evil plan, while we were gone one weekend, went to the cage. This is all suspect, but we're pretty sure this is what happened. (laughs) And opened the cage. But Mamster hid oh gosh, Gimli, hid, probably in the tube or in the far corner, so that evil enemy actually was never able to get him. But it's not just the enemy that slithers in to kill, but there's an enemy within. And Gimli's like, oh, I deserve freedom. So he leaves. He gets out of that cage, those fetters we had put on his ankles. And what is the world in which he chose to follow? The HVAC system. We believe that Gimli went into that HVAC system and he is dead, dead, dead. When we moved, we had all our friends keep an eye open for Gimli because some of you shared like these great stories of finding your hamster months later. We never found him. And that's why we moved on. 
That is the point Paul is making, guys. We are dead for three different reasons. The point is that we are very dead. Paul used very dramatic words, saying that calling us, calling the Jews and the Gentiles, calling us sons of disobedience, children of wrath. And we went to Genesis 3 yet again to make sure that we understood this. When we think of the story of Adam and Eve, they follow the serpent rather than the voice of God. And you could see the, the sin from without going in tandem with the sin within, that desire for freedom, for autonomy. And there's a tiny little detail that we looked at that helped us understand how very bad their situation was. They weren't just moral people that made a little goof. No, in their moment of rebellion against God, in their moment of rivalry against God, they chose to reject God, to rebel against him, to do their own thing, to listen to the voice of the enemy, and God had to drive them out of Eden. Drive them out. That is strong language that I know we come back to all the time, but I think it's compelling. It's this idea that Adam and Eve wanted to stay, but absolutely could not stay. One author talks about it. It's like you could almost see them like with their fingernail marks clawing at the trees to be able to stay and eat and clawing at the ground and the roots so that they wouldn't have to leave. But they were now spiritually dead and could not be in the presence of God. The moment that they sinned, the, the stench of death, the stench of decay began in them physically and spiritually as the armed angels stood and blocked the entry back into Eden. This helps us understand that we are like Adam and Eve who were east of Eden. We are spiritually dead as death came through one man and all died. Ladies, we cannot move on unless we really sit in this bad news. This is where we are before Christ, guys. We loved sin. We swam in it. We were drunk on the pleasures of sin. We were weighted under the penalty of sin. We would yield to its power. We lived in the presence of it, following the prince of this world. This is the depiction Paul communicates. The pleasures of sin, the penalty of sin, the power of it, and the presence of it. This is extreme. It doesn't really leave room for, well, we're all genuinely pretty good people. The extremeness of this problem is evident. It's explicit. But the extremeness of our problem of spiritual death is matched in the solution. What did we read? We read that God is rich in mercy. And we slow down and we said, what does that mean that he's rich in mercy? And maybe you're like, goodness, that's an easy question. But we'll go right past it, guys. It's so important. It's such good news that we need to slow down and be like, what does it mean that he's rich? It means that his mercy is overflowing. It's not portioned off, okay? It's not measured with exactness. Rich means more than we need. It means abundance. And just like we talked about how love is not just something God does, but it's who he is. This week, it's the same thing with this mercy. Mercy is who God is. It's not just something he has. And this is when I realize why I think Ephesians has been hard for me. I realize that my, what helps me learn is pictures. And so when I started thinking back to all of the children's books that, or children's Bibles that I grew up with, I remember so many pictures, pictures that stuck with me. 
And so I went and I looked at even my kids' Bibles, and I'm looking through all of these pictures that I think are going to always be in their minds now. But every time you open up a kid's Bible and you get to the epistles, you get to the letters, what is the picture of? Some normal-looking guy bending over, writing something. Every single page, it just has Paul or Peter or whoever just writing a letter. And I'm like, that doesn't do anything for me. That doesn't make it come alive. And that's why I'm at risk for missing the excitement of a book like Ephesians, because I don't have a picture to go with it. But when we allow the Bible to teach the Bible, it's like it becomes a picture book again. And so when we're in a book like Ephesians and we use the story of Abraham to make something come alive, maybe it's more likely to stick with us and then encourage us or or challenge us. And when I think of God being rich in mercy, I think of the story of the prodigal son. And so we went there and we've gone there in studies before. And actually, I think we go back in like two weeks to the story yet again. This story of a young man who followed the course of the world, who followed the lures of sin, followed his own sinful nature, left his family, partied hard, lost all his money, decided he would have to come home because he was hungry, had a plan for how he would come home, that he would come back as a servant, that he would maybe explain himself or ask for forgiveness. But what did we read? Before he could even ask for forgiveness or explain himself, the father meets him where? on the road. And we get this idea that the father is, sees him from a distance and runs towards him. Why? Because he has more than enough mercy for his beloved son. He forgives him before the boy can even ask for forgiveness or explain himself. We get this idea of warmth and a fountain of love that is overflowing. How very rich that father's mercy was. The attitude he had toward him enveloping him in a hug, planning a party for him. That's a picture we have of God who is rich in mercy. And this is where it moves to application. Because if I now have a picture of this merciful father, and I understand how very spiritually dead I otherwise would be, then who am I to not be rich in mercy to the people around me. And I don't know who it is in your life that you would rather portion off small little amounts of grace and mercy to give. But ironically for me, it's often the people closest to me. It's not the people far away or or the distant relations. It's those people closest to me that I would rather calculate how much grace and mercy and forgiveness I would give them. And so many of you know this part of my story, but this was how I lived for years as a professional Christian when my husband and I were in Colorado. And I had no idea that this, is, this was my pattern. But because I didn't view God as rich in mercy, I viewed God as this boss who was really impressed with me. I viewed God as a boss who I needed to continue to perform for. Why? Because I think I'm pretty awesome and I was pretty stuck on my own pride. So I didn't see God as this loving father. I saw him as someone who was going to grade me and assess me and who needed me on his team. And that view of God then played out in my relationships with other people. And I left so many people in my life 
thirsty and hungry for mercy. Relationships cannot survive very long in that kind of drought. And so, so many relationships in my life started to dry up. When a relationship is dry with mercy, even a little conflict or a little stress can make the whole thing come crashing down. And that became part of our life in 2014. Relationships that I had just left dry withered up and ended up breaking. That horizontal unity was broken. God was gracious to call me out. God was gracious to let things get really, really bad for me for a long time. God was gracious to have some of those relationships restored. But some of them never did. Some of them I will still have to wait, I think. Maybe a future day, maybe tomorrow, but maybe not until glory. Who is it in your life that you are withholding mercy from, that you're picking up bitterness instead of grace? How do we fix that? It's not just that we will ourselves to forgive. It's where we set our gaze, guys. We set it on the rich mercy of God. We picture ourselves under the fountain that we talked about last week. We're just getting doused in the kind mercy of our Father. And then we find that we can give it to the people around us. Paul then moves on in the second half to talk about the things on earth, the things, the horizontal unity. Remember, we're always going to be coming back to chapter 1, verse 10, the thesis that Paul says that God is bringing all things back together. As one author says it, Ephesians is about God through Christ bringing the cosmos back together. Everything that is broken being mended in Christ. So as we address the second half of this chapter, we're going to see how Paul is laying out, here's how this predicament of relational brokenness gets fixed. So remember the original context, guys. He is talking about Jews and Gentiles. So to this generation, to the first generation church, there was two races in the whole world, Jews and everyone who wasn't a Jew, called a Gentile. Two races, very, very distinct. Paul is showing us how, how is this going to be overcome? And at this moment, after such an intense first half of chapter two, we'll say, well, surely this isn't that bad. Surely this Jew-Gentile divide wasn't that bad. We understand how, how very dead we were, how very far from God we were, but goodness, this probably won't be as big of a deal. Well, what did we read? We, we made these lists. We filled out half of a chart of how bad it was to be a Gentile before Christ how very far off they were kept from God. They had no hope in the world. Well, there's two specific things that I want us to focus on from, from chapter two. Two things that kept the Gentiles from being in God's family. The first one was circumcision. Whenever we can talk about circumcision in women's Bible study, we do. So we ask the question, why does he call them this? Why does he call the Gentiles the uncircumcision and the Jews the circumcised? Where did that come from? So we went back again to Genesis chapter 17. We saw that Abraham was told that this would be the sign that they are in God's family. All male Jews were circumcised. Okay, it's kind of like the language we used last week about this was like their stamp or their seal that they were in God's family. Why did he choose that one? 
Well, the promise that we noted that was given to Abraham was that he would have offspring, that he would fill the earth. It was both a command and a promise to, to multiply and divide. And so we connect the dots as smart women that you need that part of your body to multiply. You need that part of your body to create children. And so it makes sense, but then we would maybe go on and connect that God was telling Abraham to create a pure race, a a family that would be a, a royal priesthood. And so purity and cleanliness would matter. That's why most people get, most men get circumcised now is to fight infection, to prevent infection, for cleanliness. Maybe you connected that this was a permanent sign and that being in God's family was going to be a permanent thing. Maybe you even pulled to the language that it was cutting off the flesh, the flesh that chapter 2 already told us makes us spiritually dead. All of these beautiful and not weird reasons at all why circumcision is a great sign of the covenant, how good it is to be in God's family. The Jews had circumcision, but the Gentiles did not. That put them at quite the disadvantage. But also the Jews had the temple, and the Gentiles did not. I had you guys mark temple language in chapter 2. It was everywhere. I wrote little T's all over chapter 2. Well, let's, let's think about why. Why would Paul allude to the temple so much? Here's, here's a quick flyover on the temple system. We'll also call it the sacrificial system. And before it was that, it was the tabernacle. So here's the really quick on that, okay? The very first temple that we see is all the way in Genesis 1 and 2. It was Eden. Eden was the place where God met with his people. It was a place where he said, I'm moving into town. Why? Because I want to be with you. Okay? The innermost part of Eden, around the tree of eternal life, that would have been like the holy of holy places, the innermost room of Eden. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they had to leave the temple. They had not done their job as priests, as we talked about last week, and so they had to be kicked out. The next place that we clearly see the temple talked about or the tabernacle is after God's people have been brought out of Egypt after 400 years in slavery, Moses goes to the top of Mount Sinai. God comes to him and he says, have them build me a tabernacle. Have them build me a tent that I may dwell in their midst. And there's so many details about this that reveal to us God's plan for this. He puts it right in the middle of the whole camp of Israel, saying this is what life is to revolve around. But there was courtyards. There was multiple layers of tented walls that would slow the people from thinking that they could just frolic their way into a holy God's presence. So first there was the courtyard of the Gentiles. So if you were not a Jew and somehow found yourself in their tent or in their camp, you could not go any further near to the presence of God. Paul uses the words far off. Literally, they were kept far off. The next area would have been the courtyard for Jewish women. So that's as far as they could go. Then there was another level where Jewish men could go. We we pointed out in our homework through that matching that that's where you would find the altar. So that's where sacrifices were made. That's very important that that would have been the first piece of furniture showing that you cannot come to God unless blood has been spilled, unless your sins have been paid for. That's where the word atonement comes from. And then as you go further into the tent, even the curtains would have spoken of the splendor and the majesty of God. It would look like heaven inside this dark tent. And then there was an inner room. 
that would have been the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. And inside that inner room, kept so far away from Gentile women, for sure, that is where God's presence dwelt in those early years. That's where his glory sat on top of the mercy seat, on top of the Ark of the Covenant. That tabernacle tent that would have moved around with the people of God for decades and decades and decades. And it wasn't until after the time of King David that a permanent temple was built, looking a lot like the tabernacle with those same courtyards, furniture, and room. Guys, it was beautiful. It was full of glory and splendor. It was a very extravagant place. And then the temple and our New Testament readings, that would have been in the city of Jerusalem. That is the temple that said that God wanted to be with his people, that the Jews were not excluded. The Jews did not have to stay far away. They were were brought pretty near by the blood of the sacrifices. That's where they could find reconciliation with God, a payment for their sins. The temple was their access to God. But Paul's talking about the Gentiles here. Listen to these words. This is how extreme Paul is once again, and it's important for us to understand The Gentiles were separated, alienated. They were strangers to the covenant of promise. No hope and no God. It's extreme once again. So we have to ask the question, how was this to be overcome if all things are to be brought back together? The situation for the Gentiles is as dismal as the dead, dead, dead of the first half of the chapter. So what does Paul lay out for us? Well, he shows us these prepositional phrases that I know you're having so much fun marking. Through Christ, in Christ, through the cross, through him. And maybe we don't understand it fully, but we start to understand that Christ is the solution for all of these problems. Christ is the means of reconciliation. So specifically for these two reasons, for the Gentiles, what did we read? If they were not given the gift of circumcision, as paradox as that sounds, then what was the solution for them? Well, I see this just little subtle nod from Paul where he kind of puts circumcision in its place. Did you notice that? He says, you the uncircumcised, call that by the circumcised. He says, second half of verse 11, which is done in the flesh by human hands. It's like he's just kind of, putting it down. This thing that was so high and elevated and like this honor, it's just like putting its place. He says, circumcision, which is really just something done in the flesh by hands. And by doing that, maybe he is remembering these verses even from the Old Testament, like Deuteronomy 36, which explains what circumcision actually stood for. It says, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants and you will love him with all your heart and with all your soul, so that you may live. The point of circumcision of the flesh is pointing to an internal work that only God could do, that he would cut off that flesh of our hearts and the hearts of our descendants. And the result of that, it's beautiful that we would love him with all our heart and with all our soul. That's Deuteronomy 36. And then again, Jeremiah 4.4 says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskin of your heart. It's a plea to purify your heart, O men of Judah and people of Jerusalem. Paul is showing how circumcision no longer 
is a barrier for the Gentiles to come to God. But again, what about the temple system? Why did Paul use this temple language over and over and over again to his audience? I mean, first of all, let's remember that his audience was not just Jews. It was Gentiles. We saw him switch back and forth in his pronouns this week. Why would he use temple language for Gentiles if the temple wasn't theirs anyway? Well, do you remember what stood tall in the city of Ephesus? The temple of Artemis. The people who lived in Ephesus, the people who lived anywhere close that maybe would have gotten this circulatory letter, would first think of the temple of Artemis. They would think what they had been indoctrinated indoctrinated with their whole life, that the temple of Artemis was a place of glory and splendor. Within this temple of this fake God was, was power. She is where you would get life if you gave her enough sacrifices, if you pleased her. And maybe you would get a baby, but after that baby was born, you would have to keep giving her what she wanted, what she needed. Otherwise, she would kill your baby. People were controlled by these false, by these false lies about the temple of Artemis and about this false god. So when they're hearing this temple language, maybe subtly they're starting to draw out these contrasts between what Paul is saying about the temple of God and what they have seen and what they have heard their whole life about Artemis. But also Paul was talking to Jews. He was talking to people who had heard the good news about Jesus, Jew and Gentile. And that's part of why we went to the Gospels this week, to again, try and make Ephesians a picture book. We went to the story of Jesus in the temple, Mark 11. And we could have gone to other Gospels to find this story as well. But in this story, we see Jesus clearing the temple. So let's picture this, guys. So maybe we, picture that we are a young, uh, of course, young, beautiful Gentile woman in Jerusalem on that day. And we hear that this Jesus guy has come into town and he's entered town like a king. And so there's a stir and there's an excitement going about. And then when you hear that he comes to the temple, maybe you're kind of running along because you're connecting the dots. Kings always visit the temple. That was very normal. When a king would come into a town, he'd visit the temple. And maybe you would even remember, connect what you had learned that often kings gave cities temples. That was their gift to them. And you're so curious about this man, Jesus. You see this maybe King Jesus walk into the outer courtyard. That was the detail that we were supposed to notice. That he is in the, the first spot of the temple, which we just talked about was the court of the Gentiles. And Jesus starts reacting in a way that maybe you didn't expect. Jesus flips a lid and starts flipping tables. It says that he flips the table of the money changers, those who were selling doves. A small detail that the doves would have been for the poorest of the poor, the people who could not afford the bigger animals to make a sacrifice for the festival. And Jesus has quite the response. Here he is in this outer temple, and maybe we're kind of pressed up against the wall, but do you know what this wall was actually called? It was called something that translated to the dividing wall of hostility, the words Paul uses. 
We're pressed up against this wall because as a Gentile woman, we can't go any further into the temple. We can't get any closer to God. We are kept far off. And yet we see this man that we think might be king and he might be good news for those of us who are far off. And we see him very upset about what's going on in the temple. There was so much going on, but here's three thoughts that I have that I've seen in multiple different sources. Why such a big response from Jesus? One, he sees that the Gentiles are being kept from God, and that's not okay to him. Because all the way back to the Abraham language, we hear that the promise was for all nations. There he is in the court of the Gentiles, surrounded by non-Jews, and he is not happy that they are being kept from God's presence. But secondly, he sees these tables with doves and these money changers. And as people were traveling in for the festival, they were having to exchange their money. And these money changers were hiking up the inflation so that people couldn't afford the means for atonement. They couldn't afford even a dove to offer as a sacrifice. He is mad because people are being prevented access to God. He is responding because people are being prevented from getting atonement. But I wonder if there is even something else here because if, again, we are that woman and we are watching this scene and we're both confused by it but intrigued and maybe oddly comforted by it, we catch on that this would have been a chaotic scene. Even before Jesus would have been responding, we would have heard so much noise. You would have heard different languages. You would have heard bartering over prices. You would have heard the clinking of the coins going back and forth as people are trying to make a profit. You hear people fighting over the prices of things. And maybe Jesus is responding to the fact that this was supposed to be a place of peace, that he was going to be the prince of peace, that Gentile and Jew would be at peace with one another, but also that this was to be a place of worship. How were they to worship in a place so full of chaos and busyness? How was anyone to pray? as they enter near to God's presence. See, Jesus came to be the access to God. He came to be the actual atonement, the means of atonement. And he came to be our peace, as Paul says. As a Gentile woman who wants to be close to God, we can relate with this scene. As we look inside that temple, what would we have seen Maybe what people had told us we would have seen in the temple of Artemis. What were you supposed to see in that dead place? A promise of life and power. But when we would have been looking at Jesus, we would have seen power. I just can't help but wonder, why did Jesus act out this sermon rather than just tell it to people? Why didn't he just get people to sit on the grassy hill and say, here's how the temple's actually supposed to be. It's supposed to be a place for dit, 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 and dit, dit, dit. Write that down. No, he acts it out. That it might stick with the people. Just like he acted out who we're supposed to dine with rather than just giving us notes to take. But especially in this book of Ephesians, I see it that Jesus is flexing He is showing his power as he stands inside that temple. And I think that you guys would have connected the dots. I think that you would see in that moment that reconciliation would not be a place, but that it would be a person. 
that Jesus came to bring peace, that he came to bring shalom. We read that God was, that Jesus was not coming to turn the Gentiles into Jews, like we would see like in the Old Testament with Rahab or women like that. We saw that Jesus didn't come to make the Jews Gentiles, but he came to make one new man. And as we were there seeing Jesus as a true and better temple, we would connect that as we come close to God, as we are no longer denied access to God, as we all come close, who are we then close to? Each other. That vertical unity fostering this horizontal unity. One of the other gospel accounts of Jesus cleansing the temple, Jesus quotes an Old Testament prophet when he says, zeal for your house will consume me. And when Jesus was flipping over those tables and in making a whip and driving out the money changers, flexing and showing power, surely he is showing that zeal for God's temple was consuming him. But there would be a much bigger evidence of that shortly after. A zeal for God's house, God's family, would consume him to the point of the cross. And he would willingly allow God to lead him to Golgotha, where he died on the cross, spilled blood, providing atonement for our sins. And the moment that he breathed his last, that curtain way back in the city of Jerusalem that takes us all the way back to Eden and all the way back to Mount Sinai, that curtain that kept God's presence separated from his people, was ripped in two. As if to say, everyone can now have access to God through Christ. That's our good news in Ephesians chapter 2. That we now have access to God through Christ. And yes, it's probably familiar to you if you've been in church for a long time. But there is no better news than this. So what do we do with it? What does Paul want us to do with it, at least for this week? The good news didn't stop there as he then goes on to explain that just as Jesus was the true and better temple, he would share his identity with us and that we would become temples of the living God as the Holy Spirit would come to dwell in us. But it's also a corporate thing that you and I are all of these different building blocks of a living temple of God. And that is why unity matters. Because if you and I aren't unified, then how are we going to come together and build this glorious temple? And so maybe practically what we need to think about for this week is that unity doesn't happen because you become like me or I become like you. Unity doesn't happen when the Jews start acting like the Gentiles and the Gentiles start acting like the Jews. But when we understand that we are one new race all together, made to look like Christ. So guys, you don't have to have the same Monday through Friday as the woman across the table from you. You don't have to make the same schooling choices for your kids. You don't have to make the same kind of dating choices. You don't have to style your home like the person across the table. You don't have to use the same words. You don't have to have the same habits 
You don't have to vote the same. You don't have to have the same opinions on masks or vaccines. Just like the Jews and the Gentiles did not yet have to have it all fleshed out. Wait, does circumcision still matter? Does the law still matter? Does this food law matter? Does it not? No, Paul is inviting them to lift their eyes to who Christ is. We are one new race all together. That gives us the freedom to be unified and yet not uniform, as we'll see in a couple weeks. And then we come together and we build the temple of God, this living thing that is growing and that houses the glory and the splendor and the power of God. How do you need to apply that this week? At what points in your day and your week do you need to raise your eyes and see how very rich in mercy God has been to you? And then go and do the same to someone else. Bear his image in that way, in really big ways and in the really tiny ways. And then who do you need to live in unity with? Unity, according to chapter 2, has been given to us. We just need to live into it keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, lifting our eyes above the situations at hand and the situations that we still have yet to figure out. Work backwards, guys. Someday we will all be in glory if we are in Christ. And we're not going to wish that we would have stood our ground on whatever opinion it is that we're hot and bothered by today. We're going to wish that we would have looked around and beheld the living temple of God. God, thank you for the good news that you have given us a new heart that no longer loves the pleasure of sin and that in Christ we are freed from the penalty of sin and that someday we won't even live in the presence of it and that until then, may we link arms and wrestle against the power of sin in our life. We are seated with you in the high places. Help us to stand atop that and to stand atop together. We love you for this good news. We love you for who you are. We love you for loving us first. Amen. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next week.